Sweet Jesus, I thank you that you have been good to us in our gathering together here. We've learned a lot about you. We've learned a lot about your love, uh, that you're a God of balance and beauty. And Lord, it just takes our breath away. And so I just pray as we discuss the topic of the second coming and the eternal ramifications of God's love, that you would do something in this room this evening that none of us would soon forget. For your glory's sake, Lord, and we ask this now in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. So, this evening's message is entitled, Building a House for My Wife. What on earth is this guy going to be talking about? Building a house for my wife. It's an object lesson. No funny business out there. So, our general approach when we've dealt with the topic of the second coming has been largely one in the arena of polemics. Uh, that the second coming is not a secret rapture, that it will be literal, visible, audible, worldwide. And all those things are true, by the way. Amen? Amen? Those things are true. But a question that I have is, should we be communicating what the second coming isn't at the expense of what it is? And I believe there's something far more enrapturing, no pun intended, about the second coming When we come to understand the narrative that we see throughout Scripture, and the grand narrative of Scripture regarding the second coming is actually a marriage. It's a wedding. Jesus is coming again to claim his bride and to take her back to be with him to live with her forever. We get to Genesis chapter 1, actually Genesis chapter 2, and when God creates, the first thing he does is there's a wedding. Right? Once he creates man, like the first thing man knows is he's getting married to his girl, right? So there's, there's a wedding at the beginning of creation, and then there's also a wedding at the end of the book, uh, the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation. And so I kind of get this impression that if, if this whole thing starts with a wedding and it ends with a wedding, maybe somebody has a wedding in mind. I'm just saying. <laughs> I just had this, this idea that maybe God has something in mind when it comes to this topic. So let's look at some of this. Let's go to the Song of Solomon. When's the last time you heard a sermon from the Song of Solomon? I'm not going to sing for you. You're safe. Song of Solomon. You know, this is a very unique book. Uh, Many people really wrestled to know what to do with this. I know Martin Luther, to the best of my recollection, was like wholeheartedly against this being in Scripture. Some people felt this is just like profane. Like, what is this ooey-gooey love song doing in the middle of Scripture? Like, what's, it, what's this doing here? It makes no sense to a lot of people. Uh, there aren't very many direct references to God. There's actually one climactic reference to God that we're going to cover here in a moment. But I will do my best to censor what I'm going to read in some of this uh, for sensitive ears out there. But in Song of Solomon chapter 8, what on earth is this thing doing here? Uh, Well, if the whole book is about a wedding and there's a love story in the middle, maybe that love story has some information for us that will help us to understand the big picture. Just maybe. Song of Solomon, chapter 8, beginning in verse 6. This is the Shulamite. This is Solomon's girl. She says, set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. I want to be in your thoughts and in your deeds. For love is as strong as death. Jealousy is cruel as a grave. Its flames are flames of fire, a most vehement flame. The translators really didn't know what to do with this verse. It's just strange the way that it would translate literally, and they didn't quite know what to do with it. So when it says a most vehement flame, you know what it actually means? We can look that up here in the Andrew Study Bible. It's a great reference for it. It says, best translated literally, a flame of Yah. Literally, the Lord. This expression reserved for the thematic climax of the entire song reveals Yahweh is the source of human love and thus provides the basis for the typological interpretation of the song. We continue. Uh, we'll skip down to ver, we'll skip that one for sure. Uh, we'll skip to verse 10 and we'll go halfway down because I don't want to use the B word from the pulpit. So then it says, once the- <laughs> Once there's the consummation of this love relationship between Solomon and his girl, it says, Then I became in his eyes as one who found peace. One who found peace. Now, the word Shulamite is actually the female uh, version of the word peace in the Hebrew language. Solomon's name is actually the male version of peace. How many people have heard the word Shalom? 
And so when peace and peace come together, when the two come together, there's a sense of an abiding peace that takes place. And what's being taught here is that whenever we surrender, the whole point of this is teaching us about God's love, God's pursuit of his church. This woman here is his girl, right? The church. And whenever we give ourselves fully to the love of God, there is this sense of an abiding peace that comes into our experience. And this is what it is that God is trying to teach us. The other thing is this whole book is about the pursuit of the son of David for his bride. You ever thought about that? It's about the pursuit of the son of David for his bride and their eventual wedding. Wait a minute. Isn't there another son of David in scripture that's kind of significant? Who, who was that again? Jesus. Do you think Jesus is coming for his bride? Hey, maybe that's why we as a movement exist. Maybe we're involved in this in some form or fashion. Okay. So Yahweh is that main source of that love. Every love that you and I give and receive comes from a source of God himself. All right, go to Ezekiel chapter 16. Looking at this biblical theme of a wedding regarding God's love for him, uh, for his church. And this, this motif that whole, happens all throughout scripture. Ezekiel chapter 16, beginning in verse 4. Uh, we'll begin in verse 1. Ezekiel chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. Again, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, cause Jerusalem to know her abominations and say, Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, Your birth and your nativity are from the land of Canaan. Your father was an Amorite, your mother a Hittite. As for your nativity, on the day that you were born, your navel cord was not cut, nor were you washed in water to cleanse you. You were not rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. No, I pitied you. Other translations say, no one loved you to do any of these things for you, to have compassion on you, but you were thrown out into an open field when you yourself were loathed on the day that you were born. Just imagine a child, this picture of innocence, completely rejected, forsaken, abandoned, and left by the side of the road. No proper sanitation is afforded. No proper nurturing is afforded. The birth cord isn't even fully cut. It's not washed. Just forsaken in a field by the side of the road. What a horrible, horrible experience. Verse 6. God is using an illustration here. God uses very graphic illustrations throughout the book of Ezekiel to make strong points about his love. But in verse 6 it says, And when I passed by you and saw you struggling in your blood, it is as if God is just walking down the road and he sees this helpless babe by the side of the road. I saw you struggling in your blood and I said to you in your blood, Live. Yes, I said to you in your blood, Live. I made you thrive like a plant and you grew and matured and became very beautiful. We'll skip a line there. Your hair grew and you were naked and bare. And when I passed by you again and looked upon you, indeed, your time was the time of love. By this investment and this nurturing and love I poured into you, you grew, you matured, and I came to see that it's time for you to fall in love. So I spread my wing over you and I covered your nakedness. Yes, I swore an oath to you and I entered into covenant with you and you became mine. What a beautiful, beautiful illustration of God's love for his bride. And you and I are in a very, very similar situation. We're unloved in the sense in the fact that no one can love us and fill us as God can. That's one of the reasons why many of us feel empty while we're running to this situation, this situation, this relationship, and this relationship. We're looking for people to do for us what only God can do. And we feel unloved. And God sees us in this condition. He takes interest in us and he loves us. He invests in us and we grow and mature and become beautiful. And he sees when we've reached that maturation, it's time for you to fall in love. Many of us need to have this experience of falling in love with Jesus. Not just finding ourselves having a form of respect for Jesus, which he deserves beyond measure, 100%. But Jesus wants something more than that. Jesus doesn't just want your respect and your reverence. He wants your heart. He wants all of you. He's in love with you. 
But God doesn't want to remain in that condition of loneliness and rejection, us to remain in that condition. And so he comes looking for us and sees something of value in us, even though we're a mess left by the side of the road. The faith of Jesus sees potential in something that no one else who's walking by seems to see potential in. He sees value in something that no one else sees value in. And he pours his love and belief and investment into you and you grow and mature. And when that happens, it's time to fall in love. God desires us to live and he's willing to do what's required for our growth and our health. Amen? We're not left on our own. And his work in our lives is what leads us to become beautiful. And the consummation is in us being clothed with his righteousness. He closes. He takes interest in us. You know, it's amazing to me that God is willing to love us with a perfect, unselfish love. And the amazing thing is, while he does it, whether we respond or not, it does desire a response. Right? Agape gives whether it ever receives in response But it does desire a response. Are you with me? But he gives and gives and gives and gives, whether we respond or not. But this is why. 1 John 4.19 says, we love him. Why? Because he first loved us. Maybe this is why God is always the one to take the first move. Maybe this is why God is the one who pursues and speaks belief into us. Why the faith of Jesus comes looking for us when no one else does. He saw that through his pursuit and care of us, we were ready to fall in love. And then it's time for us to fall in love. Many of us are needing this to fall in love. Some of us for the first time and for others, it's time for us to fall in love for the first time again. We need to revive that first love. And as we grow and mature in receiving his love, this is one of the ways that we actually prepare for the second coming. When we choose to grow up into this and mature into this, there is no message tomorrow afternoon at 3 p.m. I preach this somewhere else. Just ignore that. Uh, but in 1 John chapter 4, and verse 16, he wants us to know and believe the love that he has for us. He doesn't just want us to have this intellectual assent into the fact that God may tolerate me. He wants me to know and believe that he loves me, that he values me. He wants me to respond and to grow into this. There's another example of this in Hosea chapter 2. This narrative continues all throughout Scripture. Let's go to Hosea chapter 2. Hosea chapter 2. God has married his bride. We have been unfaithful and we have left him. In fact, this is one of the reasons why God refers to the unfaithfulness of Israel with words like infidelity, sexual immorality, fornication, adultery. God uses this type of language regarding our covenantal unfaithfulness. Why? Because he's always had a marriage in mind. And so he equates their disobedience in terms of marital unfaithfulness. But God married us and he lavishes love upon us and invites us to partake of his covenant. And then we spurned that love. We pursued other lovers. And the response is not what you would expect. Right. If you are married to someone and this person is radically and repeatedly unfaithful to the marriage covenant, you would assume that at some point you're just going to wipe your hands and move on to somebody else. But listen to the way in which God responds to the one who's been so unfaithful to their marriage vows. Verse 14, therefore, behold, I will allure her. I will bring her into the wilderness and speak comfort to her. In other languages or other versions, it says, will speak love to her. And it shall be in that day, says the Lord, that you shall call me my husband and no longer call me my master. Literally, he chooses to pursue us and woo us and love us, even though we have been unfaithful to this covenant. And he's wanting that through us receiving this undeserved grace of God, it leads us to have not only a sense of acceptance, but it also leads to a paradigm shift. No longer looking at God as these groveling slaves, just hoping we'll be good enough at the end of the day. But we now see him as the love of our lives. He's everything that I've been looking for. And I'm everything that he's been looking for. God is wanting us to have this paradigm shift in our relationship with him. And the thing is, whenever you have this paradigm shift, you are more than willing to give, to live, to serve, and to surrender because you know they have your best interests at heart. You with me? 
So there isn't this sense of, I'll just disobey and do whatever I want because now I'm in the marriage. No, no one thinks that way. I don't even know why we jump to these conclusions when we start talking about the grace of God. We just jump to the fact that everyone is dead set in rebellion and hates Jesus and is looking for a way out. Let's not overassume here. What God is saying is, your perspective is going to change when you fall in love with me, and that's okay, amen? We can embrace that, we can rejoice in that, and not go to the opposite extreme in making assumptions. So encountering the amazing love of God leads us to have a shift in our view of how we have our standing with Him. And when He sees that we're ready to fall in love, the very next thing that happens is, He drops to one knee. He says, I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice and loving kindness and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. Then I will sow her for myself in the earth and I will have mercy on her who had not obtained mercy. And then I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people. And they shall say, you are my God. So what has to take place to make this a reality? The very next chapter begins with a price being paid to buy back an unfaithful woman. This, beloved, is the gospel. God seeing something in you that even you don't see in you. And you know, we are not capable of creating the type of love that God deserves or desires. It comes from us first encountering His amazing love for us. And again, this is why God is the one to make the first move, even though we fail and pursue other lovers. This is why he has to do this as he does. We love him because he first loved us. This also leads us to have a change in our desires and leads us to begin to love the things that God loves and to hate the things that he hates. It brings about this transformation of how we do life and how we view reality. Now, this theme of Jesus coming as a husband to woo us is also found in the New Testament. John the Baptist made this point very clear. Go to John chapter 3 and verse 29. This is really cool. That was just the appetizer. Now we get to the goods. John chapter 3 and verse 29. So John the Baptist has disciples, and his disciples are starting to get word about the fact that this Jesus guy has disciples, and they're baptizing people. Now, wait a minute. John the Baptist is in the business of baptizing people, and now Jesus is baptizing people. There's the temptation in their flesh to believe this guy's kind of like sheep stealing, you know, like this guy's kind of stealing our thunder. That's our job, right? Go into some other business, and they're getting a little defensive about this, and so they bring this concern to John the Baptist and say, hey, this guy's baptizing people. And I love the answer that John the Baptist gives. This is in John chapter 3 and verse 29. Listen to this. John clearly understands who he is, why he is, and where he's going. And when you know that, insecurity has no room for existence. One of the reasons why some people are so insecure is because they do not know who they are, where they're going, and why they're here. And so in turn, when somebody else's ministry gets more baptisms than our ministry, we get insecure about that. When somebody else's this starts to do better than our this, we start to get insecure. John wasn't insecure because he knew who he was. He was secure in his identity in Christ. And so somebody else having success didn't bother him because he knew who he was and why he was here. So John chapter 3 and verse 29, he says, He who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. So what type of language is John the Baptist employing when he talks about the coming of Jesus the first time around? A wedding. And he understands that my job as the best man is to ensure that the bride and the groom come together. And when they come together, my job is done and I can walk off the scene and be okay with that. Because John understood that this isn't about me. It's never been about me. My job was to prepare the way for Jesus. This is coming together. My job is complete. Now, I I love the fact that I can preach this sermon now because my best friend Mark is getting married of all days on my birthday. (laughs) And he's asked me to be his best man. So if this dude ever forgets my birthday, he's toast. (laughs) And of all things, he's getting married in Texas. 
He's brainwashed his girl. They want to get married in Texas. My only problem with Texas is that it's Texas. If it didn't have that going for it, I'd be totally fine with that. (laughs) And so anyway, he's getting married. But just imagine, guys, as the best man, I'll say nice things about Mark. I may not say nice things about Texas in my speech, but I will say nice things about Mark because he's a pretty good dude. But just imagine if at that wedding, I decide to make the wedding about me. What a disaster that would be, right? As the best man making the entire wedding about me. Amorous would kill me in her wedding dress, 100%. And there's no way I could allow, there's just no way that would happen. And John the Baptist understands this. The role of a best man is not to make everything about them. The whole point is to ensure that what they need done is done so they can come together. Are you with me? So he's not threatened by the fact that Jesus is coming, but here's the point. Jesus' ministry begins with a marriage in mind. Hey, what was the first miracle? Where was Jesus' first miracle performed? At a wedding. Then we get to the really, really awesome stuff. So in Matthew chapter 26, turn with me there, would you? Matthew chapter 26. And you may be wondering, what's this got to do with a wedding? I'll tell you. So Matthew chapter 6 and 27, it talks about Jesus taking the cup. It says, then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood. And it says of the new covenant, that word new is actually somewhat supplied. It's not in all manuscripts. It could just be my blood of the covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you that I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until I drink it that day with you in my father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So what's this got to do with the wedding? Did you know that in first century Judaism, when a young man found a girl that he was interested in, and he saw, I think, I think this could be, he approaches his parents, his parents approach her parents, and they have a feast. And at this feast, everyone's gathered together. Once things calm down, they do their all whatever they're going to do. There comes this moment where there's a table in the middle. And the guy and the girl are sitting at the table. And there's actually a chalice filled with grape juice. The man takes a drink and he passes it to the girl. This is the proposal. If she drinks from the cup, she's saying, I agree to the marriage. If she doesn't drink from the cup, it's embarrassing. (laughs) Just imagine... Went through all this work, had this feast, girl won't drink my juice, game's over. Like, it it would be really, really bad. It would be really embarrassing. Um, And I mean, just imagine, like, it would be very, very difficult to go through this process again. Like, you may be scarred for life. Like, I'm just going to be a eunuch. I'm, I'm cashing out. I'm done. But that's the way it worked. And so if the girl agreed that she was going to say yes to the proposal, you know what the guy said next? Let not your heart be troubled. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'm going to come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. Jesus is employing matrimonial language and services when having the Last Supper with his disciples. He's not marrying dudes. Don't freak out about that. Some of you, I see some of your gears turning a bit, but wait. <laughs> Didn't we talk about that this morning in the Q&A? Um, and so this is what ends up taking place. And in first century Judaism, the way this worked was, he says, in my father's house are many mansions. It's actually many rooms. And what actually took place was he goes back to his father's house and he begins building an addition onto the father's house. He's preparing a room for he and his bride to live in. And he does this by himself. He's building a house with his bare hands, hence the title for our message, Building a House for My Wife. And he does not, he he keeps building, he gets no help from anybody, he gets no affirmation from anybody, and he's not actually able to go and get the girl until his father says that the house is good enough. He doesn't know the day or the hour. Only the father knows. And so what does she do? Well, what she does is she goes home and she learns how to be a wife. 
had to prepare for those duties. Her mom is training her to fulfill those duties of being a faithful wife. And her other responsibility is for her to put a lamp in her windowsill. Every night, without fail, and that lamp in that windowsill is testifying, I'm still waiting. I've not given my affections to another, I'm still waiting on you. And then when the house is finished, then the virgins lead this man to the girl's house. And the thing is, if you're building a house with your bare hands, and you don't get to see this girl until this house is done, it's like you can have visitations in between here and there, like, that's it. She drinks that cup, and you don't see her again until the house is finished. And so she, so he goes through this process, and if he finishes that house at 11.45 p.m., you better believe he's not waiting until Monday. <laughs> he leaves the house right then and there, and the virgin cousins lead him with the oil in their lamps. They lead him to the house, and if that light is still shining in the windowsill, he knows she waited. And they get married that night, right then and there. And so a lot of the language that's used regarding the second coming in the New Testament from Jesus' mouth is actually matrimonial language, guys. He ties matrimonial language to the second coming. Now, this teaches something of great importance. The topic of commitment. He had to build a house by himself before he could get married. And every brick this guy laid had a purpose and a goal in mind. When he understood what was awaiting him and the beauty of this marriage that was before him, this is what brought him the intrinsic motivation. Right, Eric? Right? Where I can't, there's the light shining in my eyes, but I thought I saw him. Oh, he's over there. There he is. He was sitting over there earlier. Later, the other day, maybe this morning. Yeah, it brings that intrinsic motivation, right? Love is a far better motivator for the second coming than fear. Amen? Well, then maybe we should stop implying fear in our presentations on the second coming. Um, I'm still kind of wrestling with this idea of why we have meetings with like dragons and scary reptiles on our posters outside to invite community members. I just would wrestle with that. And I don't know what this church does, so forgive me. But I just, like if I drove by and I saw someone saying, we're having meetings and there's a picture of scary reptiles on it. Is this an animal exhibit? Like I don't, I don't understand the purpose behind that. Those beasts are biblical, I get it. But people who aren't biblical, biblically minded, have no idea what that thing is. It makes no sense to them. Anyway, I digress. I don't even know why I said that. We'll, we'll just pretend I didn't say that and just move on. That never happened. But the way in which we communicate the second coming, the best motivator for this, for someone to be committed, is love and not fear. Because fear does not run a long race. Fear runs a short race. You may be able to scare somebody into a pew, but that doesn't keep them there. Are you with me? Love is a far better motivator. Jesus understands this, and this is why he does what he does. And we were also told, we heard this earlier this week, love is the agent that he uses to expel sin from the soul. So anyway, this guy, every brick he lays, he has a goal and a purpose in mind. It's what keeps him motivated and focused. It's what should do the same for us. I believe there's parallels in marriage preparation and preparation for the second coming. He didn't get to see her, but what motivated him was being able to have her as his own. That she could be with him where he is. This is what motivates him to keep working. He can't go to see her until his father says it is good enough, and he has no idea how long that's going to take. Which is why Jesus says, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not the angels in heaven, but my father only. Matthew 24, verse 36. And my friend Sebastian was talking about this. He has a seminar on on relationships and he kind of addresses some of these topics. And he made the point that when he was getting, when he got married, he had a bachelor party, a sanctified bachelor party. Amen? No foolishness. And so he's having this bachelor party and all his guy friends start kind of sharing things with him. And one of the things that they did was they all kind of wrote a letter to him. And it was a prayer for him and advice for him regarding this decision he's about to embark upon. And he says, man, they grilled me good. These guys knew all my weaknesses. They knew all my stuff. But this is what one of the people wrote in their letter to him and what they shared with him. They said, Sebastian, my prayer for you is that after you get married and the flame of romance has died that it will always be able to be rekindled as long as you maintain the embers of commitment. And there's a lot of wisdom in this in a lot of ways. For one, there isn't this assumption 
of predestination when it comes to everything. Like if I just find the person that God wants for me, everything's going to be amazing and we'll never have problems. Unfortunately, some of our presentations give this picture. If you just let these things go this way, everything will be great. You won't have any problems. You have a great life and all this stuff. The problem is you are both sinful human beings merging your lives together, right? For the glory of God, things are going to work. But the point is there's tension. There's stuff that happens along the way. And there will come a time in which the fire of romance will die down. That happens. But what keeps you going is the embers of commitment. If there were embers of commitment to get this thing going in the first place. Our society does not value commitment. Our society values romance. And there's a big difference. But anyway, he says, if we get in a relationship but the groundwork for commitment has not been laid, we're setting ourselves up for failure. Our culture doesn't cause you to focus on commitment. It causes you to focus on romance. But when the fire of romance dies, what are you going to do? Are you going to leave like most of society does? Well, I drove this car for three years. I need a new car, right? Are you going to have this consumer mentality or is there something deeper that's driving you into this thing in the first place? Only the embers of commitment can bring it back. Even when the fire dies down, if there are still embers remaining, You can rekindle this fire, and that's the point. We need to make sure that our road... I think this is what I want. Yeah. We need to make sure that our road to marriage as a single person, he says, is paved with tests of commitment. Otherwise, we're going to find out in our marriage that we weren't ready. But in a Jewish culture, they found out before you were married, right? The father, the future father-in-law knew that you were committed because you built a house with your bare hands, and no one helped you. They were, it was very clear, you're not just playing the field, she's pretty, she pleases me well, get her for me. No, 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 no. You know the illusion there, I'm sure. Um, they understood, no, 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 this guy is committed to this thing, right? Giving a cow would be easy. Building a house costs a whole lot more, right? That takes time, that takes patience, that takes investment. You're going to smash your hand, you're going to get splinters, it's going to rain. Stuff's going to happen. Are you in this thing for the long haul or are you in it for you? And I believe the same principles here regarding their preparation for marriage are very similar principles for us in our preparation for the second coming. Are you committed to this thing? Are you in it for the long haul? And is it love that's your intrinsic motivation? Because if it's fear that motivates you, you may start a house, but I doubt you're going to finish it. Because the journey's hard. It's a lonely road. There are ups and there are downs, and only the embers of commitment will keep us going, that we're committed for life, even if it gets easy, even if it gets hard. He knew what it was like to prepare for a relationship, and the same thing for the woman. He gets no affirmation when he built for her, right? He's getting no Facebook messages, no no text messages, I'm rooting for you, boo, you know, make a nice house for me and make it pretty. He doesn't get any of this. There's no affirmation along the way. He builds and he builds alone. But every brick he lays and every hammer he nails, he's wondering, what will she think of this house when I bring her here? He just kept building with her in mind. How would she view the house when he brought her here? All he had was her word that she would not give her affections to another. All she had was that his word that he was preparing a place. They were both committed even though they could have done something else. There was this time of waiting and patience that they had to go through. So love should be the motivation for our preparation, and true love is committed. Amen? We'll skip this. Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17. Listen to this. John chapter 17. Moise mentioned this this morning in the Q&A, that one of the things that can help us in our prayer life is praying out loud. I'm so glad that Jesus prayed out loud that Daniel prayed out loud, like that there's all these recorded prayers in Scripture that help us to know, hey, people wrestled with stuff like I wrestle with stuff. This person, when they were praying, understood that they were coming into the very presence of God and came into His presence with reverence, respect, and awe. There's so many lessons we can learn just from seeing the prayers that we have in the Bible because they were recorded, because somebody heard them. And I'll give you some background on this, because I have a little bit of real estate, not a lot, but a little bit of real estate. In John chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17, we find a narrative that you do not find anywhere else in Scripture. Actually, the Gospel of John was the last book of the Bible written. Did you know that? 
It wasn't the book of Revelation. It was the gospel of John. John was the last living apostle at this stage, soon before he dies. And he's surveying the landscape and he recognizes what has been there, what's known. And he realizes that what, what is it that I need to give to the next generation of our church? Because no one who will be leading the church after he dies knew Jesus personally. So what should I share? And what he shares is John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. Now, I believe the themes of those chapters are actually found in the book of Ephesians. John actually died as the pastor of Ephesus. I believe John, in seeing the writings, that and these are just my summations, but I believe that in John seeing the letter that Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus, he was reminded of themes that he was present for that wasn't written for anyone else and felt they needed to be further elaborated upon. But I believe John 13 to 17 is the message for the 144,000. I believe there's a lot of important information there for the church. And so anyway, Jesus, in praying for you, first of all, just take a moment to appreciate this. Jesus prayed for you. Which implies that he kind of, you know, likes you and stuff. There, there are desires in the heart of Jesus for your well-being. And Jesus says in John chapter 17, Father, I desire. Not, it'd be nice. It'd be okay. Father, I desire that they might be with me where I am. Jesus longs for you to be in heaven. He's preparing a place for you to be in heaven. How's he doing that? You think Jesus is swinging a hammer and nails for 2,000 years and is just like the universe's worst carpenter ever? Right? If they can build a house here in much shorter time, what must, it, what must Jesus be doing? Jesus is preparing a kingdom for us by preparing a kingdom in us. His work as our intercessory high priest in the midst of the investigative judgment. He's doing what we talked about this morning. He's separating us from sin. He's preparing a place for us by preparing a place in us. That's John chapter 17. But then when Jesus is resurrected after his death, he has some time with the disciples and he heads into heaven. We're talking about a man's pursuit of his bride, right? The son of David pursuing his bride. When Jesus is resurrected, we're told in, in the spirit of prophecy in a few places. But we're told that when Jesus gets into heaven, heaven erupts in praise. The angels erupt in praise. You have never seen a worship service like this in your life. I don't care what YouTube has to offer. I don't care what Hillsong has to offer. You have never seen a worship service like this one. And Jesus looks at the angels and says, no, no. And he presses into the presence of the father and he has one question. Can those whom you have given me be with me where I am? Are you happy with the house that I've built? Is it good enough? This is the first house. There's another house he's building. But is it good enough? And the Father says, yes. Desire of Ages says in that moment, the Father embraces the Son for the first time in 33 and a half years. He embraces His Son. I'm so proud of you. Yes, those whom I have given you can be with you where you are. Then Jesus accepts their worship then Jesus accepts their praise, and this is the very moment where Revelation 12 tells us, Rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to the earth, for the devil has come down to you, knowing that it's a very short time. And this is when the devil's cast down. All of his arguments have lost every sense of sympathy in the eyes of heaven, and why heaven rejoices in praise. Guys, Jesus' ministry began and ended with an emphasis on his pursuit of his bride. You're all he thinks about. You're always on his mind. You are the love of his life. And the book of Revelation in chapter 19 of verse 7 shows that the second coming is a wedding and that the bride has made herself ready. This is the deepest longing desire on the heart of God to be reunited and reconciled with his people. 
And this narrative from Genesis all the way to Revelation has been the same. I loved you. I love you. I had you. And I lost you. And I gave myself for you to bring you back to me. This narrative goes all the way from Genesis to Revelation. And this is absolutely beautiful and amazing to me. And I wish that we communicated this side of the second coming more often to our people. Because the sense that a lot of our people have is the what ifs. The idea that it'll never be good enough. What if, what if, what if. Our people, many of them, are filled with horror and terror when they think about the second coming. Whenever the narrative of the second coming in scripture is one that should cause your heart to race. How do you think the bride should be feeling when she knows that her husband is coming to get her? She should be enraptured. And yet many of us are horrified. Why? Because of the way in which we communicate. We may be saying things that are factually accurate, but the emphasis that we're communicating with leads to emotional damage and scars And so for many of us, there is emotional freight in our heart and in our mind when they think of the second coming. Should we be striving to be ready for the second coming? Yes, that's the whole point of what I've been talking about. Let's not ignore that. There is a preparation the bride is to go through. It says the bride has made herself ready. But if our lives are filled with fear regarding the moment of the greatest reunion the world will ever know, I think we miss the point. I think we missed the big picture, and I think Satan delights to see it so. For us to be robbed of the beauty and the anticipation that the second coming should allow. But I want to share one more thing with you that is absolutely powerful and that will have an appeal. Emma White, in the book Heaven, gives information regarding what Jesus achieved And what was necessary for eternity that will blow your mind. She says by Jesus' life and death, Christ has achieved even more than recovery from the ruin wrought through sin. Are you understanding this evening? Jesus, through his life and death, did not just restore what happened with Adam and Eve. He's done something that brings us even closer than if they hadn't fallen. It was Satan's purpose to bring about an eternal separation between God and man. But in Christ, we become more closely united to God than if we had never fallen. In taking our nature, the Savior has bound himself to humanity by a tie that is never to be broken. When Jesus condescended to become a man, it talks about this in Philippians, when he humbled himself, taking on flesh... And became even obedient to death. I don't think we fully appreciate what took place. Jesus did not temporarily lay aside a suit coat, go do some work and put the suit coat back on at the end of the day. Jesus has forever been less since the incarnation. The father lost a part of his son that he will never get back. Are you hearing me this evening? Jesus eternally changed the way in which he did life. Omnipresence is no longer an option for Jesus. Because there's something about you that is not worth being lost. He would rather lay aside aspects of his own nature to ensure that you have a chance than to continue in this condition, in this relationship with the Father, and you not have a chance. Because you are that precious in the eyes of Jesus. Hey, maybe that's why when he's resurrected, he refuses the worship that he didn't get from anybody for 33 and a half years, though he deserved. Because that wasn't what was the most important to him. Jesus was secure enough, he didn't need to be lauded or worshipped. He's so concerned about you that all he cared about was, is it enough? In taking our nature, the Savior has bound himself to humanity by a tie that is never to be broken. And through the eternal ages, he is linked with us. God so loved the world that he did what? He gave. Remember, it's the glory of God to to give. He gave his only begotten son. 
He gave him not only to bear our sins and to die as our sacrifice, he gave him to the fallen race. He let go of something when he gave Jesus to us. To assure us of his immutable counsel of peace. You know what the counsel of peace was? It was the meeting between Jesus and the Father and making the determination before the fall of man and even before the fall of Lucifer. And ironically, it was this meeting that leads to the fall of Lucifer. But the counsel of peace, that if there were to be a fall, what will we do? So apparently, to assure us of his immutable counsel of peace, that he meant what he said, and they're going to see this thing through to the end, having loved his own who are in the world, he loves them to the end. God gave his only begotten son to become one of the human family forever to retain his human nature. This is the pledge that God will fulfill his word. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. Remember this morning when I said there's no such thing as cheap grace? It costs something. It costs a lot. And it's something that can't be undone. Do you think you matter then to the heart of Jesus this evening? You better believe it. You better believe it. But I want you to put yourself in the mind frame of a young man. He has finished the house. The father says the house is good enough. Go get your girl. He makes the trek through the night. The virgins of the oil their lamps leading the way. And he gets to the house only to find that the windowsill is dark. It's dark. There is no lamp in the windowsill. She didn't wait. She's given her affections to another. How would you feel? It would be devastating. But what I don't think we understand is that Jesus himself is going to have a very similar heartbreaking experience. Because as Jesus comes back to claim his bride, he's going to come back and find that not everyone had their lamps trimmed and burning. That not everyone had a lamp waiting in their windowsill. And guys, it's going to be devastating to Jesus. Devastating. I made a place for you. I've been interceding for you. Having loved you who are in the world, I loved you to the end. I kept my end of the deal. I kept my promise. And you didn't wait. You gave your affections to another. And it'll devastate him. And so as they have the appeal song this evening, I want you to be reflecting. Is there a lamp burning in my windowsill right now? Have I been taking that preparation seriously? And what is Jesus going to find when he comes to my house? Maybe for some of us, there was a time when we were in love. And that fire burned hot. And strong. But for some of us, that flame of romance has died. And even worse yet, with the death of that flame of romance, even came the death of the embers of commitment. And we found ourselves dead, cold, and we don't think there's really any more hope for our situation. But the beautiful thing is, you can find fire from the very flame of Yahweh tonight. You can love Him because He first loved you. Maybe you've gone dead and you've gone cold. You can find fire from the very flame of Yahweh. But will you come? I don't know your story. I don't know where you've been. In all honesty, it doesn't matter. My question and my appeal to you this evening is very simple. If you've realized that maybe you've lost your first love, your first love has waned, or you're coming to find a greater newfound appreciation for your husband who's coming to take you home, and you want to respond this evening and say, I do, Jesus. I do. I want to spend the rest of my life with you. 
I don't want to wander anymore. I don't want to pursue other lovers and other idols anymore. I want to go all in. That's you this evening. I want to invite you to stand. God in heaven, I thank you that you have a love for us that truly indeed is stronger than death. There is an other-centered love in your heart for us that we cannot even fathom. Why would you say and think the things about me that you say and think? Why would you continually knock on the door of my heart when my religious experience makes you want to vomit? It must be because you see something in me that I don't see in me. It must be because you see something of great value inside of this home. And you'd rather make a fool of yourself on my doorstep until I respond. And so, Lord Jesus, I pray that if some of us in this room this evening have had our experience go cold and dead, that we would come boldly to your throne of grace this evening and that we would find the very flame of Yahweh rekindle our experience that you would revive our first love, and that when we think about the second coming of Jesus, our heart would begin to race, and that we would recognize that the love of my life is coming home. No more fear, no more shame, no more condemnation. Lord, I finally found my beloved, and my beloved is mine. May that be our true experience, Lord. And I pray that those things that are in our life that pull us away from you, that would keep us from being ready for that, Lord Jesus, give us a hatred for these things. May we see how ridiculous and encumbering they are, and may we lay them at your feet. I pray that through encountering the undeserved goodness of God, that you would separate us from this sin. You would set us free indeed, and that the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus would make us free from the law of sin and death, and that we would be free indeed. God, I thank you that you who have begun this good work in us have every intention of finishing it, if we abide in you. Bless us now this evening, Lord, I pray. Cover our sins with the blood of Jesus. Fill us with your Holy Spirit, Lord. We're nothing without you. We're a people in desperate need of the Spirit of God. May you give us this gift, we pray. And we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.com dot org.